2: Hey, everyone. Dane here. Before we get into this episode, just a heads up. It's the last one in our series about Daryl Allen. And I've got a favor to ask you. If you've enjoyed the series, consider telling a friend or two. We're an independent show, so we rely a lot on word of mouth to help new people find us. Thanks so much for joining us on this journey. Let's get into it. Welcome back to resurrection. This is the final episode of our series on Daryl Allen. We start where we ended last time, with a box.
3: I mean, I had no idea Jonathan was going to go and die on me.
2: When Daryl died, he left half of his plays with his partner Jonathan. Jonathan died in 2017.
3: I'm guessing his family just, you know, anything they didn't have a connection to, they would have just tossed.
2: I feel like I'm like on a roll. I might try to just call him Today.
4: You have one saved message.
5: Hey, Dane. This is Jeff Houston. I have found a box of materials that is typewritten plates. They're about 25 pounds worth. I want to know if you want me to send them to you, but I want to talk to you first. Because my daughter made a promise to my brother that these are to be taken care of, so I want to know what your intentions
2: are. Here we are. After years, it feels like the universe is rewarding me for the work that I put into Daryl's archive. I started with a single script from Daryl's lover Dan. Then Dan gave me Daryl's love letters. Then I met Janet and she had her half of the scripts. And now the other half of the scripts are so close to being mine. All I have to do is convince Jeff that I'm worthy. For the last time in this series, this is Resurrection. Resurrection my love letter to Daryl Allen. Hello? Uh, Hi, is this Jeff?
5: Yes, it is.
2: Hi, Jeff, it's Dane calling back. How are you?
5: Hi. Um, I'm doing okay. Um, Listen, this, um, I guess I told you, uh, in the voicemail, that this box of stuff, is, it's about um, a little bit under 25 pounds. I just uh, weigh... Jeff down
2: my loves to know, chat. And I mean true chat. And, He's the uh, kind of guy I could grab a beer with and chat all day long. I have to rein him in a little to get things started.
5: I'm Jeffrey Houston, and I'm Jonathan Houston's identical twin brother, born and raised here in Indiana, small town. And I've been married for 51 years, and we have three daughters, nine grandchildren, and one recent great-grandchild.
2: I asked Jeff about the scripts.
5: My brother was in ill health, and he had these manuscripts with him. And he talked to my oldest daughter, and he said, If I pass away, I want you to take these, because I trust you will take care of these and find some home for them.
2: Jeff takes this request from his brother seriously
5: he thought that they were pretty special and he wished that uh, when he went that a university or somebody that was interested in publicizing these manuscripts would come into ownership of them
2: i of course am neither a university nor a publisher so jeff is going to press me a little
5: bit and uh, so what are your plans then
2: uh yeah so the the important question here um so I may not be part of a university or a publishing house or a theater company but I genuinely care about this story. And by now I know how to show people that I care. I get to know they're part of the story. I asked Jeff about his brother, about Jonathan. Can you just tell me what kind of a person he was?
5: He could be kind of stubborn. <laughs> of course, he was my brother. I loved him. He was my twin brother. He had a great sense of humor, hilarious. He had a hilarious sense of humor. And he was a very giving and empathetic person. And I think he emphasized a lot. Uh, he became involved with the AIDS activism. He was very active politically. He worked phone banks. He volunteered a lot of time.
2: Ask about their childhood together.
5: Well, our home life was an unhappy childhood, and I know that sounds depressing. But my, both my parents were what I would consider alcoholics. John was a very hard worker. We we picked up pop bottles for two or three cents a pop pop bottle, mowed lawns, shoveled sidewalks, anything. We kids felt kind of insecure in that we always thought you know if mom and dad got divorced, we'd be out on the street somewhere. So That insecurity was there all the time, too, you know.
2: Was there a moment that he came out to you? or
5: Yeah, maybe two years after we got Frederick and I, so when he went over there to South Bend, um, that's when he announced it to my wife and I. And I believe my wife's attitude was it was something he he would just go out of, you Mm. know, he would move on to to something else. Uh, We didn't discuss it a whole lot, you know. Um, John was always welcome in our house or anything like that. You know, there was never any issue there or anything. A few
2: years after Jonathan came out to his brother, he and Daryl got together.
5: Did you ever meet Daryl? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I met Daryl a few times. He was here a few times. Uh, They traveled together, and they stayed with us some of the time. Um, I know, um... When the whole AIDS thing first started, uh, they did not stay with us. They stayed at a hotel just because nobody knew. It might have hurt John's feelings, but nobody knew at that time how it spread or what would happen or anything. And we had kids. So it was like, we got to be careful, you know. Yeah. Now, I mean, we know so much more now than we did back then.
2: I like Jeff. He's friendly, easy to talk to. I'm not including these clips to paint him as a bad guy. I think he's a good guy. I'm including these clips because this was the reality of the time. Homophobia, especially during the AIDS crisis, it was so brutal because it came from everywhere and everyone. It came from the good guys, too.
5: But I met Daryl and I liked him a lot. He kind of reminded me of, of somebody from around here. He could fit into a small town.
2: Did their relationship make a lot of sense for you? Oh, I think
5: so. I think they're very happy together. I think my attitude was that, well, he's settled down and he's found somebody. Because I think everybody deserves to be happy, you know.
2: And I think Daryl and Jonathan were happy, even during the hard times. Did you ever talk to him about Daryl's death?
5: John told me that he was basically kind of losing his mind. He He kind of got like Alzheimer's and all. Uh, didn't he? Um, like, it was like brain cancer almost.
2: When Daryl started getting sick, Jonathan got involved in AIDS activism.
5: Yeah, I think that's when he really became involved. And that like went to see the AIDS quilt I know in Washington, D.C. and spoke on different panels. Just uh, education more than anything else, you know, because people didn't know what was going on.
2: Daryl's death was hard on Jonathan. He struggled with substance
5: use. He started using methamphetamines.
2: Jonathan moved around after Daryl's death. He left Boston and ended up in Portland, Oregon. He was having a really hard time.
5: He cashed in two 401ks and and really it ruined his health. And he lost his job, and I thought, this man is going to end up either dead or in jail. And thank goodness, he finally had like a wake-up call. He got busted for a small amount of possession, and that just finally straightened him up enough that he came back to Indiana from Portland.
2: When Jonathan came back to Indiana, he did something very, very gay. He took all the shit he'd been through, and he made meaning out of it.
5: And then let me tell you one thing, I, wa- I really want people to know this. He helped scores of people by sponsoring them with a group called NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous. He helped so many people. And even when he had a heart attack, they were having meetings in his intensive care room, you know. He helped a lot of people. At his funeral, uh, some of these people came and said he literally saved their life, you know. So in that way, you know, he, he, he did a lot of good, honestly.
6: I wish
2: that the queer narrative wasn't always taking tragedy and trying to spin it to gold. Jonathan had a tough life. But he made meaning out of it. And he had his time with Daryl. Did he have any other partners after Daryl passed?
5: Um, nothing serious, no. No, not really. I just don't think that there was any, um, no, nothing. I think that Daryl was kind of the love of his life, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Ah, all the losses that happened during the AIDS crisis.
5: Yeah, oh, I hear ya.
2: Well, this may not come as a shock to you, but based on our chat, Jeff decides I'm worthy. Okay, so it is Boxing Day. Uh, December 26th, 2020, and I have this big old cardboard box that uh, has arrived from Jeff. Uh, Let's see if we can break into this. This box is filled to the brim with scripts. Some are bound, some are held together with paper clips, some are stuffed into big brown envelopes. But Far Different by Daryl D. Allen, comedy in two acts. The process of opening the box enchants me. Oh man. But Far Different, Act One, Scene One. I worked so hard for so long to piece together the tiniest scraps of Daryl's life, and suddenly I had this box filled with his words, filled with him. Well, here's a big old folder that says. <laughs> Mustang, the Vietnam Trilogy. It's like information overload. Oh, we got another big envelope. A Shakespearean revel. I don't know how to describe what I felt in this moment. I pulled out script after script, title after title. Fortran in B minor. A compilation is one called Riverside. seen as the interior of a bathroom. The Vietnam Trilogy, part one. The Duality of Daffodon Later, I'll learn this play is actually called The Duality of daffodown Dillies. But, like, come on. Seriously expect me to nail that pronunciation on a cold read? Persephone Rising. In Dayton, they control Halloween. The end, upside down, and backwards. It's is called Richard, Do You Ever Get the Feeling the World is Passing You By? Intermezzo. Don't dance male and Anymore. female Hamlet. Well... That's it, you guys. That's what we got in the box. A whole bunch of scripts. A lot of scripts. Like five or five or six or seven or eight. It's not eight different plays, you guys. It's 13 plays. 13! A prime number. I love prime numbers. What if I had never started this podcast? Would anyone have ever read any of these scripts again? I'm excited to read some of them myself and uh, also share them with, uh, with Janet. Signing out for now. We've got 13 scripts to get through. This is a dream for a little history dork like me, handed a box of scripts that haven't been read in decades. Well, I think it's been far too long since we had a research montage. Bring in the music, Maddie. I spent about six months reading through the scripts. It's work, but it's also fun. And I wanna stretch it out to savor it. When I'm in the mood to spend some quality time with Daryl, I pull out a script with my coffee on a Sunday morning, or I take a script to a park and cozy up under a tree. Guys, some of these scripts are wild. There's one that's set inside a computer. Fortran in B minor. Another follows a gay couple living in post-apocalyptic America. Where am I?
4: What am I doing here? This place is horrid. It frightens me. Fear coddles me and terror chills like wind. One of the best parts about diving into these
2: scripts is that each one provides a little window of insight into Daryl. Into who he was. There's an absurd comedy set in small-town Kansas. The end. Upside down and backwards. In the play, a leprechaun handpicks one of the men in the town and decides that he'll give the man the secret to world peace.
4: Oh, I can just picture it now. You are addressing the United Nations. (gasps) What an ovation. But the man
2: turns out to be too much of a uh, complete dick to be willing to take the secret. A perfect example of the human race. You think you're so
4: smart. Think you have all the answers.
2: I can't help but feel like this is a commentary on some of the insensitivity that Daryl faced in his hometown growing up. Then there's a comedy of errors set in a cabin in California. But far different. In this play, the main character ends up professing his love to both a man and a woman. You two came in like a truckload of turkeys. It results in a hilarious threesome, but I can also hear Daryl explaining his bisexuality in
4: his own words. And now I have to go back once again and face all of you. All the hazards and all the intrigues and all the games and all the evasions and half-truths and lies and the hurt and the joy of it all. Then
2: there's the prequel to Mustang. Mustang was part of a trilogy, and the first script,
4: The Duality of Daffodown Dillies,
2: proves to be just as dark and challenging as Mustang. There are also some stylized plays, a review of Shakespeare. It includes a monologue I remember performing in university. Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? I am myself indifferent, honest, but yet I could accuse me of such things that it would be better my mother had not borne me. And another of Noel Coward.
6: You've no idea what the tiniest little inferiority complex can do to people.
2: But out of all of the scripts, there's one that I find absolutely captivating.
6: Persephone Rising.
2: It was written in the 70s. Here I am, nearly 50 years later, and it's still resonating with me. I find myself laughing out loud in some sections.
6: Don't you know that if you have a single handsome man of 21 years old in any office in San Francisco, that the odds are probably 100 to 1 that he's gay?
2: In other sections, I get emotional.
6: In all our life together, you've never allowed me to finish anything I've tried to say, and I so desperately need to now.
2: When I finish reading Persephone Rising for the first time, I'm left with a strong feeling that this play should be shared with the world. And this gives me an idea, a big idea, on how to end this story. Suddenly, after years of work, after years of always digging deeper, always looking for more, I see the ending, clear as day. I give my producer, Matt, a call to explain what I'm thinking. Do you remember at the beginning of the... Pandemic. when I became obsessed with playing Zelda Ocarina of Time. (laughs) Yes, that's right. To explain the ending of this extremely serious, years-long, heartfelt project of mine, we have to look to the greatest cultural object produced in the last century. Nay, the last millennium. The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Okay, so at the beginning of Zelda Ocarina of Time... You're playing the character of Link, and Link has to go around and he has to collect three magical artifacts, three parts of the Triforce. And when he puts those three artifacts like, on their pedestal at the Temple of Time, it opens this gateway where he can move between the past and the present. And That's what I feel like we're doing with this project, because we started off, and Dan started it all by giving us the first piece of the Triforce, which was like Daryl's script to Mustang and the letters. Triforce Part One From Dan, the love letters and the script to Mustang Zero-One. And then we have gotten the box of materials from Jeff that has the other half of Daryl's scripts, which to me is the second part of the Triforce. Triforce Part Two, from Jonathan, his box of scripts. And the third part of the Triforce to me is the other half of the scripts, which Janet has with her in Sonoma, California. Triforce Part Three. Janet's half of the script. So I want to take our two pieces of the Triforce to her piece of the Triforce. We're going to unite the three parts of the Triforce. And I feel like that's going to open up the temple of time for us. And we're going to be able to walk back and forth through the past and the present. (laughs) Is that the nerdiest thing I've ever described? (laughs) In real talk, though, this means we're going on a trip. We're going to the city where this whole love story started. What I'm trying to tell you is we're going to San Francisco, baby. We plan our trip to San Francisco. Take some time for us to make the trip happen. It's still the middle of the pandemic, but eventually we end up here. Okay, well, it is Sunday, May 29th, 2022, and I am currently in the Montreal airport. We're going on a little trip. We're just cruising in the highway. We just landed. We're in a taxi cab. And we are headed to the Castro District, center of gay history. For a San Francisco trip, we've got a crew of three. Me, you already know me, and my producer, Matthew Carriatsumeri, who you met back in Kansas. He's waiting for us at the hotel. But I also brought along our sound editor. And in the taxi with me... The other Matt. <laughs> Matthew Rogers. Matthew has done most of our sound editing and has written almost all the music you've heard in the whole series. He's coming to San Francisco to help out. And just to have some gay fun. Oh, look at that hot man. Oh, they're everywhere. There's hot men everywhere. On to the hotel to meet up with Matt K., Hi!
4: Hi.
6: Welcome to Bex Mother
2: Lodge. Reddit will later tell me that Bex has been a gay cruising destination for decades. Seems like the right spot for our trip into Daryl's past. With the three of us united, we head off to grab a burrito and plan our next few days. Okay, Matt, do you remember the theme, the San Francisco theme that you wrote for the very first episode?
3: (laughs) <laughs> that one, right?
2: Yeah. I'm just creating our musical transition. Oh,
3: and then it's going to like, edit in. Yeah.
2: I love that. Welcome to the final chapter, San Francisco. Hello, world. It's Monday morning. We're in our hotel in the Castro District in San Francisco, City of Angels. And I'm a morning person, so I'm up and rearing and ready to go. And this is the, That's the sound of Matt turning over in bed. Matt! No. Matt, it's time. No. Matt. It's time for what? Matt, get up. Why? We have to go explore gay history. Okay. What are we doing today?
6: We're going to go walk around San Francisco, walk around Castro. Are you
2: going to get up now? Nope. Well, someday soon we're going to start this little journey. After rousing Matt with some coffee, ready to start.
4: So Dane, where are we going?
2: Okay, so I thought for a while about where we would start off our San Francisco gay walking tour. And here, we're just going to head out of our hotel, start kicking off our day here. I went back into the letters that Daryl had sent to Dan, and I found a passage that said, Boy, am I ever glad the two of us decided to go to the nines that
4: evening. Boy, am I ever glad the two of us decided to go to the nines that evening. It must be fate. Especially Daryl and
2: Dan met at this French restaurant in San Francisco called The Nines. The Nines has been closed for a couple decades, but we managed to find the intersection, the exact cross street, where this restaurant used to be. So we're going to start there, exactly where Daryl and Dan fatefully met 43 years ago.
4: I love you and measure each day by thoughts of you. I'll write more tomorrow.
2: Uh, I think our Uber's about to drop us off at the corner of Powell Street and Broadway which is the intersection where the nines used to be. So we're pulling up here. Yeah, this is perfect. Yeah, this is perfect. You You're wonderful. Thank you so much. Hey, why don't we tuck into a nook here out of the wind a little bit? Okay, so we are on Powell between Broadway and Vallejo. This is right where the nines used to be.
4: Can you describe what the building looks like?
2: It's one of these typical San Francisco apartments that has the fire escape on the outside. That It just reminds me of, like, a Tennessee Williams play. Almost exactly 43 years ago, Dan was waiting for a table for himself. Daryl was behind him in line. Daryl asked to join Dan at his table, and thus begins our entire story. My dearest Danny, I love you. Part of me wanted to come here just to talk about these weird little moments in our lives, like completely random moments that you would never think would completely reshape your life, but then they do.
4: It makes me feel so good to talk with you, receive your letters, and know that a very wonderful man loves me.
2: Like, what if Dan had been 10 minutes later? What if Daryl had been 10 minutes later? What if Daryl had seen a friend on his way over? Like, what if any of these things had happened that had thrown off that sequence of events? Like, Dan and Daryl never would have met. Dan never would have dated him, never would have become close to him, never would have gotten the script, never would have given it to me.
4: That still blows my mind away. It's amazing how one week can completely change one's life and dreams.
2: But then the same with me, you know, I met Dan at this gay bar in Montreal uh, five years ago and, you know, what if I hadn't gone to the Pride Parade that year? I considered not going. It's just all these little moments that I don't know if I believe in fate, but they do add up in a bit of a fateful way
4: i think of you so very very much i love you daryl this is the
2: other interesting thing coming back 43 years later is things change everything changes you know like there's the restaurant is not here anymore we're in like it's we're in physically the exact location where they met 43 years ago like i can picture it in my head but The building's gone, the people are gone, like, everything has changed. This is what I wanted to explore in San Francisco. How much has changed? And how much has stayed the same? When we open up the Temple of Time and walk between the past and the present, what's different and what's stood the test of time? We start by regrouping at the hotel. Okay, so right now it's Monday, early afternoon. We are in our hotel in the Castro District in San Francisco. The city of love. The plan for the day is to go track down some locations that were meaningful to Daryl while he was living here. And I found these hand drawn maps that Daryl made for Dan back in 1979. He drew this map of the Castro district. So, our plan for today is to trace. Daryl's steps. All of the locations he has all these bars marked on these maps. We're gonna trace his steps uh, of where he used to hang out in San Francisco and see if any of these establishments still exist.
4: Um, so, Dane, we've made it to Castro District. Um, what are we gonna do here?
2: Yeah, we're here in the Castro. The Castro is like a very uh, famous gay neighborhood in San Francisco. In like all of U.S. gay history, it's it's the neighborhood where Harvey Milk uh, kind of came to fame as like the first openly gay. Uh, elected official in California. Uh, But it's also where Daryl lived, and this is the time when he was really exploring uh, sex and relationships with men, kind of leaning into that side of his bisexuality. So we have this hand-drawn map he put together from 1979 that charts out 20 of his favourite places in the Castro. They're all in kind of a one-block radius. So we're starting at the corner of Market and 16th, and we're going to walk around this one-block radius and just kind of see if we can feel what it was like for Daryl, see if we can imagine the paths that he walked while he was living in the Castro. So let's get a little... get a little gay. Yeah? We're in the Castro. It's gay. Who can count how many pride flags we see? One, two, three, four. Daryl's map of the Castro lists bars, restaurants, cafes, brunch spots. It's a little road map to 1979. And we're ready to follow it. It's super cute. Very gay. Hello. Oh, my God, there's so many hot people. Oh, I think you might have heard me say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's it feel like to be here? I just feel, like, kind of at home and, like, a little sense of, like, relief and, like, a little weight off my shoulders. I Every time I see, like, a two men walking in the street holding hands, like, it just makes me happy. And it's interesting to... Think about how it's been kind of the place for decades, you know? We start by looking for a bar called Men's Room. Let's see, we're at the corner of 18th and Noe. So, right, what's that bar called? Last Call. Last Call Bar. The bartender tells us that the Last Call Bar used to be the Men's Room. This is a bar where Daryl used to drink. But it has been like a staple of the Castro. It's here. been a, a
4: it's been days. a local hangout for as long as I remember, like late into like the 80s, 90s. Yeah. I
2: want to thank the bartender for sharing his story with us. Do you want a tequila shot? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not pretty on
4: tequila. <laughs> Neither are we. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's cute. when you're
2: your age It's not cute when you're my age. <laughs> Now, look, you might judge us for doing tequila shots on our very professional research trip, but I know that Daryl would not have judged. Although our walking tour is turning into a tiny bit of a bar hop and it's starting to show in the recordings. Here's my thoughts on The Shining. Make sure you're rolling for this. Um... Drunk Me has very strong opinions about Stephen King. I think that the book of The Shining is amazing, and Stephen King wrote it beautifully. We're having a little bit of fun at the Castro. Like we here. find that some spots are gone, but some are still here. We find number 14 on Daryl's map, Moby Dick. And he describes it as a Young Stud Bar. We find number 4. Cove Cafe. A breakfast spot. Number 12 is still around, too. The Sausage
6: Factory. <laughs> the
2: Sausage Factory is a great name for a gay bar, but it's an even better name for a... Pizzeria. Um, I kind of want an entire pizza, but we can't really take that break right now. We're closing in on the last spots on Daryl's map. There's one bar we saved for the end. It's a famous one, Twin Peaks Tavern. And it's special. Janet, Daryl's ex-wife, had told us we could use Twin Peaks to find something important. We're here. We're at Castro and Market, very busy intersection. We're right in front of the Twin Peaks Tavern, which was the last item on uh, the map that we had to visit. Uh, We saved it for the end because we knew that it was still gonna be here. The Twin Peaks is kind of a famous famous bar here. Um, And we came here at the end because Janet gave us an exercise we were supposed to do at the Twin Peaks. She wrote this down for us, so let me pull it up here. When you are in the Castro, stand in front of the Twin Peaks Tavern. Look across Market Street and up Castro. On the right, past an existing parking garage, should be a green Victorian house with three levels of windows, which I think is right there. That's the building Daryl lived in when he first moved to San Francisco on his own at the end of 1973. His apartment was the windows on the top floor left. So we came here, we wanted to experience what this was like for Daryl and kind of imagine his life here in the 70s and 80s. And I feel like being right here in this spot, this kind of noisy and sometimes imperfect spot, we can actually start to do that. Like, I can imagine him up there in his apartment, having a nightcap, typing out a play on his typewriter. I can look across the street and see the cove where... We went for breakfast, and it's the same place where Daryl used to go for breakfast. And I can imagine him having one of those stacks of pancakes that we had. I can imagine him, you know, maybe traipsing up the road, a little drunk, arm around the shoulders of of some guy who he's taking back to his place to have some fun with. I don't know, I can just start to imagine the paths of Daryl's life here. And I did a little bit of, of math, and I figured out that since Daryl and Dan met here in 1979, there have been about 15,000 days that have passed. And for me, it's fascinating to stand here and just think about all the paths that all of the different queer people have walked on this street. Not just Daryl. Not just Daryl going to a bar, going for breakfast, or going back to his place, or typing out a play at a cafe. It's all of the queer people who've walked these streets and had meaningful moments in their lives. I don't know, I've worked on this project for five years and it's taken up a lot of my life. And a part of me always wonders, you know, if Daryl was here, what would he say? And I think he would say, you know, Dane, you've spent so much time making meaning out of my life and trying to make meaning out of other queer people's lives. What do you want to do with your life? What are your next 15,000 days going to look like? What are the paths that you're going to walk? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think there's a super nice way to tie this all up. I'm just going to go out and try to, you know, maybe fall in love, maybe make some art. But for right now, I think what all of us are going to do is go into Twin Peaks and, uh, have a couple drinks, maybe too many drinks in Daryl's name, and uh, try to imagine what it was like in there for him, having shots, having beers. We head into Twin Peaks. I have far too many martinis, extra dirty with extra olives because I love sodium. Next up on our trip to San Francisco, we unite the Triforce. We're going to meet Janet in person, and that's coming up right after this break. See you on the other side.
1: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, everyone.
2: Dane here. And I'm Matthew Carriedo-Mary, Dane's friend slash producer. It's our last episode, Matt. It is. How do you feel?
4: Devastated. <laughs> I'm sad.
2: <laughs> I'm also sad. This project has taken a lot of our lives. When we started this, we were, we were young and hot 25-year-olds. And now, only one of us is hot. This is your last chance, everyone. If you like this story and you want us to make more stories like it, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. It's the funding from listeners like you that will decide if we can keep this podcast going beyond the first season. And listeners, Dane will underplay this, but he has put so much time into this series, and he really wants to do more. Thank you, Matt. Joining our Patreon will also get you tons of perks, like extended interviews, Q&As, and more. Did you just burp? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did it sound like I burped? <laughs> You can find our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash resurrectionpodcast. That's ones r If you prefer to make a one-time donation, the link is also down there in the show notes. Let's get back to it. Thanks so much for supporting us. Yes. Thank you all just for listening. That's a form of support. Thank you. Let's finish this off.
6: Recording. This is take 61.
2: Hey, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. We are currently driving... Uh, We are driving out of San Francisco We're going about an hour north of the city To Sonoma Today is the day that we are Meeting Janet in person Never met Janet in person before So that's exciting And we're going to be doing an interview A Skype call with Janet and Dan And Janet and Dan Despite both knowing Daryl very well They've never met each other before They've never talked to each other before So we're going to have that conversation And see what comes of it Hoorah, baby. We drive about an hour north of San Francisco, into the small town of Sonoma, down a few small-town streets until... Hello? Hello? Hi
3: there! Oh, Hello. it's a mask. Nice to meet you, mask. Hi. <laughs> it's me, a mask. Ah,
2: my glasses
3: are fogging up. <laughs> Come in.
2: Okay, how are you?
3: I'm good. Hello. He's a person. Huh? You're real. I know. You're this,
2: <laughs> this is amazing. I want to hug you. I want to
3: hug you too, but... it's okay. Next Hi, guys. Time. Hi, Next life that Matt and Matt. Matt and Matt.
2: This is Matt. This is uh, Matt. also Matt. After two and a half years of friendship, uh, finally, uh, Janet and I get to meet in person. And Janet calls it for what it is. Oh,
3: yeah, so it's... it's a little awkward. Okay, come on in. Um, I don't know, you know.
2: It is a little uh, awkward. Yeah. There's maybe. a lot of expectation yeah. baked into this moment. I,
3: I clean. Plus,
2: we're trying to be COVID cautious. Janet's in her 70s with some pre-existing health conditions. So we're all wearing masks and we choose not to hug or shake hands or anything. But after a few minutes, we all start to settle and things start to feel more comfortable. Some might say too comfortable. Should I take off my hat? Let the mullet out? <laughs> I'm trying to grow a mullet right now. They're in again. Did you know that?
3: I was going to ask you why. They're in. You're going to start seeing them everywhere. Well, you know, the thing is, when they were in the first time, yeah, they were, I'm sorry, they were mullets. And they're still mullets. No, give,
2: <laughs> give me a man with a mullet and a mustache. Ugh, that's all that I need. Okay, so okay, we're good. having our first fight, which is a really great <laughs> way to start off this interview. Uh, I'm going to call Dan now. I get ready to call Dan, who's waiting for us in his apartment in Montreal. Now, just before we get into this interview, just a heads up, we decided to leave all the windows open during the interview. This was for increased air circulation to reduce any COVID risk, but it means you can sometimes hear traffic and the occasional wind chimes from the outside. Janet, before we do this,
4: hmm.
2: what do you want out of this interview?
3: Uh, to give you what you need to tie it off. I've already gotten what I need. Hmm.
2: After a few minutes, we need- we're all set up and ready to go. Janet, for the very first time, is about to chat with Daryl's ex-boyfriend, Dan Wiley, the man who gave me Daryl's scripts in the first place, the man without whom this project would never have happened.
3: Hi, Dan. Hi, Janet.
6: Pleased to meet you.
3: Pleased to meet you. I was trying to remember whether we ever met, and I don't think we did.
6: No, we've never met. Daryl, I remember him talking a lot about you. Mm -hmm. and always with love. It was always from a place of love. And as Daryl and I got to know each other better, I heard a little bit more about your story and how you got together and how you might have always been together had he not been a bisexual man. Very pleased to meet you.
3: Pleased to meet you, too. Very
6: very Um, emotional for me.
3: It's hard for me to call you Dan because Daryl always called you Danny. (laughs) And, and I heard a lot about you, too. So, um, so when, whenever I say something to Dane, I say, how's Danny? Because that's the way I think of you. For
2: me, it's funny to see two people who I know so well, who I associate with Daryl, meeting each other for the first time.
3: I, it's hard to put a single descriptor on an emotion at a time like this. It's happy, but it's also sad. And it's also, what's the word for what might have been? I'm thinking about what, what a person could have done had that person not died.
6: Completely agree with that. I think, and not all, but I think some good people die far too young mm. and that they had a lot more to give to the world and to us. Mm. And I know Daryl was extremely sick towards the end. And he was the type of person, though, that would it was always so kind that he was most probably taking care of Jonathan just as much as Jonathan was taking care of him in the sense of trying to make sure he would be okay after he was gone.
3: He takes care of everybody. I had a dream a month after he died where he was sitting at a table with my brother and... Jonathan and me, at a table in the Twin Peaks Tavern in San Francisco. But we were drinking coffee, believe it or not. And it was as clear, I mean, it was as clear as if I had lived it. And he just said to us, all three of us, he said, I'll always be with you. I'll always be with you. So he has been.
6: That's a beautiful
2: memory.
5: Mm -hmm.
2: I remember when I was back home in Nova Scotia in Truro during the pandemic, living with my parents and caring for my grandmother who had been moved into palliative care, I remember it was Christmas Eve and I was walking home up a hill and I was like, so it was like the most depressing Christmas Eve of my life. Like I'd spent the most of the day at my grandmother's just caring for her while she was quite ill. And then my mom came in and did a shift. So I was walking back to, my parents' place and I was just so sad and I like sat on this rock at this lookout that looks out over at the valley intro and I was just like crying and at that moment I kinda of felt this presence and I like looked behind me. There was no one there but I, I felt like it was Daryl there, just putting a hand on my shoulder and saying, You can get through this. It's okay you're here, you're doing the right thing. And there have been a few moments throughout this project where I've just felt a bit of a presence, and I don't know if I fully believe in that, but, you know. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> I know Daryl did.
3: Mm-hmm. So we'll hold the belief until you get there.
2: I, I mean, I'm much, I'm much closer to being there now than I was at the start of this
6: project. Can you tell me a little bit about what Daryl shared about me to you?
3: Um, let me think. Well, he ra- I remember that he raved about you. He just thought you were the best thing since sliced bread. Um, <laughs> um, and it was always Danny. It wasn't Dan. And I don't, what I don't remember is any specifics about your life. I just remember that he thought you were great and attractive and talented. And he said, well... You were much younger than he was, but what did that matter? And that, truly, I wish I had more memories, but that's about what I have. But it was like, I knew this wasn't just a passing fancy. It was important. And I got that.
6: We became family, even after we, I mean, um, I I know that I hurt Daryl. And being young is not necessarily an excuse for how you handle a breakup, but but
3: it's an explanation. It may not be an excuse, but it is an explanation. Yes, because I hurt him too at times, and it was I was young.
6: But uh, I, I, I'm, I've always been thankful that he was able to forgive me, mm-hmm. and we became a family. Mm-hmm. Richard and Jonathan and me and Daryl spent some wonderful, wonderful times together. What do you two think he? would want
2: his legacy to be. That's what we're exploring with this project.
3: Support for younger playwrights. Um, Especially, I don't want to categorize, but especially playwrights that might have a, a few strikes against them, meaning they're a minority, or they happen to be queer, or they're a woman even, I don't know. But first of all, young playwrights, and second of all, those who need a leg up.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think we've got that. Mm-hmm. He wrote something very similar in a letter mm-hmm. that, uh, that yeah. you gave to me as well. But I'm curious if you two have any, any lessons, any messages in speaking to the younger generations What do you want us to share through this project?
3: Try not to make the same mistakes we made. Whatever those are.
6: It took Daryl a while, but he found his true self and he lived his truth to the fullest, and I think he would want young people to not have to go through some of the hurts that he had to go through in order to find his true self.
2: Now that Janet and Dan have had a chance to get to know each other and to share some thoughts and memories of Daryl, it's time to do the thing we came to San Francisco to do it's time to unite all three pieces of the Triforce. Since the beginning of this podcast series, I've always said that Daryl wanted his plays to be produced, to be staged.
3: His line always was, plays are written to be played.
1: Mm,
2: To be played. Played. I like that. After years of work, I've managed to collect all of Daryl's plays. With the copies from Dan, Janet, and Jonathan, we have the scripts for all Daryl's work. Before traveling to San Francisco, I shared the scripts with Dan and Janet. I've scanned those and uploaded them to a drive that we all share. All three of us have taken a few weeks to read through all of Daryl's scripts and decide on one or two scripts that we think could work if they were staged, if they were played today. And we're talking about Daryl's legacy. Maybe we can end off the podcast by seeing if there are any artistic directors out there listening, who might be interested in putting one of these plays on stage.
3: Seems a very good idea.
2: (laughs) Dan, Janet, and I pretty easily agree on two scripts that stand out in Daryl's work. I told you, both of you in advance, there was one play that I absolutely loved, that I think absolutely needs to be staged. Mm -hmm. So maybe we start there, and that play is... Persephone Rising. Mm -hmm. I quoted Persephone Rising at the beginning of this episode. The play follows... Two women in San Francisco who live in a uh, one-bedroom apartment side by side. The play is a small two-person cast. It's character-driven, revolving around the relationships between the two women. One of the women is in her mid-twenties, the other is in her mid-thirties, and they create this sort of mentorship, friendship with some possible erotic undertones. It's a simple and beautiful story.
3: I agree about Persephone. Unfortunately, a lot of what's described the women going through hasn't changed significantly.
2: Mm.
3: Although it's dated in some ways, and I think it ought to be staged in the time it was Mm -mm. written.
2: The play is set in the 1970s. It was Daryl's present day, but now it feels
6: like a period piece. The two plays that I can remember Daryl always working on was Mustang and Persephone. Here, Dan brings up the other play we selected,
2: Mustang Zero One. It's an obvious choice, but a challenging one.
6: Mustang is a very complicated play um, mm-hmm. with, with technical issues that, that... I am not an arti- artist of any... I can't even draw a stick man, so <laughs> from an art- artistic perspective... Don't ask me how you could stage a play like Mustang.
2: Mustang Zero-One is supposed to have more than 20 characters. Staging issues aside, I'm not sure how any theater company in this day and age could afford to pay 20 actors to be in a play. I'm intrigued by Mustang, by the possibility of producing it. I <clears throat> for me, the artistic side of me would want to do probably a staged... Reading or just a read through maybe workshop with some actors. Mustang would likely need to be workshopped and edited before it could be ready for production.
3: It depends on what you're what how you're intending to go about it, Yeah. Putting it out there.
2: Let's think about Mustang as existing as a workshop. These are the two plays we've selected. Persephone Rising and Mustang Zero One. Persephone is ready for production today, but Mustang would likely need to go through a workshop phase. And this, listeners, is where you come in. Do you work for a theatre company? Do you know an artistic director, or an actor, or someone involved in the theatre scene? This is the point where you have the chance to shape the story. We are looking for artistic directors and theatre companies who might be interested in staging Persephone and Mustang. If you're interested send us an email at hi at resurrectionpodcast.com. It's also in the show notes and on our website, resurrectionpodcast.com. And tell us about yourself, your theater connection, and your interest in Daryl's work. We don't know what'll happen, but we think there's a chance we could get Daryl's work up on stage in the future. Plays, after all, are meant to be played.
3: I think we were all just waiting to get organized for Dane to come along, and uh, and because we needed a jumpstart of energy and focus, and and then I wonder, where you where have you been? Well, thank
2: you. I'm glad that my hyper focused, obsessive personality can, that's uh, it.
3: that's what we needed can help. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, you know, I love disassociating from my regular life through projects. Before I wrap up with Dan and Janet. I have one final question. What do you think Daryl would say to all of us if he was here with us in this moment? Which he may be, but if you had to give voice to him...
3: I'm so proud of you, and keep doing what you're doing. We... All the way through, it's been one foot in front of the other. Yeah. And then he'd say, shall I go mix some drinks?
6: (laughs) From my perspective, though, I think it's already been said, but this was all meant to happen. It was preordained. Daryl had to be somehow exposed to the world in one way or the other, whether this podcast or one of his plays. He needs that to be told. He needs a story to be told. Now that we've
2: united the Triforce and brought Dan and Janet together for the first time, it's time for one final stop on our trip to San Francisco. We pack up and head out of Janet's. But Dan and Janet exchange contact information, and you'll be happy to know they've been in contact since the interview. No need for me as an interlocutor. And me and my two Matthews get in the car... And drive to our final destination. Hello. Hello, hello. hello. Hi. Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Are you uh, Roddy? Yes, I'm Roddy. Great. I'm Dave. Dave? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And this is Matt. 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 Can I maybe start by just having you say your Your name and
7: like what your involvement is? Sure,
0: Roddy Williams. I'm the quilt operations manager. I've been with it for twenty years. This is Gert.
7: Yeah, my name's Gert McMullen, and I've been with the quilt since 1987.
2: We're in San Leandro, meeting with Roddy and Gert, who both work for the AIDS Memorial Quilt, which has been happening since 1987.
7: The AIDS Quilt started as an activist thing. It was not uh, as a memorial, really. It was about that thousand person had died in San Francisco, and Cleve decided he was going to have a march.
2: Cleve Jones is an AIDS activist. He's the one who first conceived of the AIDS Memorial Quilt In 1985, during a march, Cleve had people write the names of loved ones on signs, loved ones who were lost to AIDS-related causes.
7: And so we we all marched down to the federal building, plastered up these uh, names all over the federal building, and he thought it looked like a quilt. So then about a year later, he started the quilt. But it was done purely as an activist thing.
2: The Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt, or AIDS Quilt, commemorates those who've died from AIDS-related causes. The quilt is made of tens of thousands of panels honoring the dead. Each panel is three feet by six feet.
7: They're three foot by six foot because that's the size of a grave, and we were laying down our dead in front of the White House for them to take action. And we thought we'd save the world, and we had no plans on continuing afterwards. We were just going to go there, save the world, and be done with it.
2: Since its conception, though, the AIDS quilt has taken on greater meaning.
7: It's still an activist thing. It's many things. That is, a thing. Like, I, you know, we are about anger and being fed up and stuff like that. But it is a memorial to it, and it's a memorial for the people that have been left behind in many ways. It's a, that's who we help and who, you know, those panels are a reflection of the person that died, but they're also a big reflection of the person that's alive, that made it.
2: The AIDS quilt is stored in a warehouse. It's massive, weighs about 54 tons. Because the quilt is so large, the panels are folded and stored on big, multi-level shelves. They're cataloged, like in a library. So anyone who wants to visit and see their loved one's panel simply has to make a request to come in.
7: That's 50, almost 50, not quite, 50,000 panels and 105,000 names on there.
2: On occasion, parts of the quilt are displayed publicly. But we're here for a specific reason. We're here because Daryl has a panel on the quilt. Actually... He has two panels. One was created and submitted by Jonathan Dan and his group of friends. Unknowingly, Janet created another panel. Gert and Roddy have pulled the two panels from the catalog for us to take a look at.
0: There's some space on the ground to be able to open again, and I only feature that we, we do normally hang on, but we can, um, uh, we'll open up the ones, the two that you requested. Um that would so be amazing. That, yeah. yeah. So.
2: On this block, we have the Panel that was put together by Dan, uh, I believe Jonathan, as well. They've put together this square with a, its like a light blue square, a, a little bit of a silver trim, uh, some leaves on it, and then they've put a script onto the panel. And there's a quote from Mustang one on the panel: "We cry for the living, not for the dead. For us who remain." The dead are all right. They've lived, and it's now behind them. We cry for ourselves and for our hurt, and we remember all those times we failed to reach out and failed to speak and failed to forgive. The second panel, from Janet, is patchwork. It's made from a series of small fabric squares. Blues, purples, yellows. I'd describe it in more detail, but I don't need to. Because you've been looking at it this whole time. The cover art for this podcast uses a picture of this panel that we took when we were visiting the quilt. The panel Janet made features little patches highlighting different parts of Daryl's personality ballroom dancer, producer, performer, Irishman, traveler, outdoorsman, playwright, graduate, U.S. Air Force. <sighs> Janet also decided to include a quote from one of Daryl's plays on the panel. Even though Janet and Dan only met for the first time today, it feels like their souls touched years ago when they made these two panels. It's the same quote. They both put the same quote on their panel We cry for the living, not for the dead. Oh, this is a, like a little bit overwhelming. All 50,000 of these squares are a person who had just as full a life as Daryl did. And we spent years digging into Daryl's story, and, you know, look, there's a square just above him, Michael Acachella a square below him for, uh, well, we've got, look, a, a memorial for a bunch of, there's probably 50 names on this square for Bridges Memorial for Boston. Uh Standing in a warehouse filled with names and panels, I felt a pulsing, an energy from all those lives, all those people lost. It was overwhelming. Then, in the corner of the room, I spot one panel that hasn't been sewn into the quilt. It's hanging, alone on a wall. It says, The Last One. I ask Gert what it is, why it's alone on the side.
7: This uh, says when the last one is named, we will begin to heal. There's a note
2: attached to this panel, too. A sheet of paper with a message written on it. Gert tells us she's the one who wrote the note, and she agrees to read it for us.
7: I sent this to the board, because right? the other evening I was going through my, th- my things-to-do box. This was in it. It had been for over 10 years, that was a long time ago, in 1989, just before the 88 tour, a man came into the workshop and Market Street to submit a panel. Jack Castro and I asked if we could uh, wait until and hold on to it. It would be a day we would all share. I'll start crying now. Um, so it would be the last one sewn in.
2: This panel will be the very last one
7: sewn into the AIDS quilt. Um, what could be more wonderful than to sew... The one in with all you had given, all you had for the quilt. With those who had lost so many friends, the panel maker agreed and the panel was set aside. I've never seen that man again. I often wonder what happened to him. Since that day, everyone who knew of the last one panel has died. They will not know the joy of sewing it in. I sometimes wonder if I will. So I share the story with you. Stories are not much if you're the only one telling them. So this is our reminder of what we do and what we're here for. Just so the last one in and be done with this. It is a dream. It is all of our dream. Mm -hmm.
2: For a long time, I didn't know how to end this series. After five years and countless hours, I feel I've done Daryl justice. I've shared his art and I've shared his life. With all of you. So, this last part, it's not for you. It's for me, and for Daryl. It's my way of saying goodbye. This story started with Daryl's letters. I thought I could end it the same way. First, I asked Dan and Janet to each write me a letter, from Daryl's perspective, of what he'd want to say here, at the end. Dan finished his letter first. He wrote it from the perspective of Daryl, as if Daryl had never gotten sick, never died, as if AIDS had never happened, and Daryl was still alive today.
4: 2023. Wow. What a long way the queer community has come over my 84 years. Who would have thought? I now live with two partners, Julie and Paul. It's been 20 years, but all three of us decided to form our new family. We are in a non-monogamous, polyamorous relationship, and that is great because I love to flirt with whomever catches my eye. (laughs) I am thrilled that Dane took on the task of helping me spread the word about my work. I continue to write plays about my lived experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I dwell more about the good these days because I have lived my life to the fullest. I have met and joined in relationships with many different men and women over the course of my life, and I feel blessed to have shared those times with them. I have traveled the world and am thankful for them. Well, I am off to visit Janet and head off to the winery for our afternoon glass and a chat. I am so thankful that our relationship has evolved into best friends. I love Janet so much. Much love, Daryl. Next,
2: a letter from Daryl. Written by Janet.
4: Dear Dane, I chose to write this as if I have been on a long journey, having left my work, the plays, behind me. To a certain extent, that is exactly what I have done. I'm just now dropping back in to remind myself of what I left and to comment on how your project evolved and came together. First, Dane, I think that you and I are cut from the same cloth. We are, of course, separate and unique individuals, but we see the world in many similar ways. We see both the light and the dark, and we struggle to balance them. I couldn't have imagined a more appropriate person to bring this project into being. You and the project brought together people I loved who were important in the life I lived here. I appreciated the difference in their perspectives and in the areas where their perceptions of me seemed to agree. I appreciated that you took the time to draw out what was unique from each of them. And I treasured the way you wove my life together with my work. Those plays that meant so much to me, that came from my heart, my soul, and my mind. If those plays in my life speak to others, creatively or personally or both, then you and I have done our jobs. As I thought through the ideas I would write to you in this letter, I began to wonder, what else could I say to you? Not about the project so much as about you and your life and your dreams. I realized I would want to thank you for your hard work, for persevering when things didn't fall easily into place, and for your unstoppable curiosity that propelled everything along. But most importantly, I would hope that having completed this project, you will now focus on your own needs, both creatively and personally. Relatively speaking, we have so little time in this life to bring ideas to fruition before we move on. I wish for you the time to do all the things that unfold in your active, fertile imagination. And I'll enjoy watching how you do this. With many thanks and much love, Daryl.
2: Now, the last goodbye. A letter from me to Daryl. Dear Daryl. It's strange to be saying goodbye to you now after all these years. Firstly, fuck you. I had no idea it would take five years for me to put your whole life together. Five years? That's a long time, man. But it's been worth it. I hope you're happy with how I represented you. I hope you feel good about what we've done with your plays. When I started this project years ago, I struggled with this darkness inside me. And if I'm being honest, I still do. I wanted to learn to love the way that you did. Full force, full commitment, no fear. Well, I'm happy to tell you that you have taught me that over the past few years. I was always afraid in relationships. I would always... Run away, put up walls when things got vulnerable or difficult. But I learned from you the value of pushing through that. I've been dating a man. It's been nearly a year now. I know, that's a long time for me. And I love him a lot. It's not always perfect. I'm not always perfect. But when things get hard, I don't run away. Think about what you would do and I face the challenges head-on. I don't know what'll happen in the long term, but I love this guy. And in a lot of ways, I think you showed me how to do that. You taught me how to love, taught me how to be an artist. You taught me to value every single day I get in this fucked-up, messy, beautiful gay life. So now it's time to put down the microphone close my laptop and get out there in the world. It's time for me to go live. Thanks for everything. Dane Thank you so much for listening to our series on Daryl Allen. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell some friends. It helps a ton. We're an independent podcast and we have lots of ideas for more stories we'd like to share. But to do that, we need money. Right now, we simply don't have the funding we need to do more of this. So if you'd like to hear more stories and you got a few spare bucks, please consider becoming a monthly supporter on Patreon or making a one-time donation on Coffee. Both those links are in the show notes. Matthew Rogers is our editor and sound designer and wrote all of the original music in today's episode except for the acoustic guitar, which came from Ethan Soyle. Davide Kietzeze is the voice of Daryl's letters and scripts. Additional voice acting by Renee Hodgins and Stephen Tige. Hannah Sung is our executive producer. Our outro track is called Easy to Love, written for us by Clara Jones. Matthew Kariatsameri is the platonic love of my life and my co-producer. Huge, huge thanks to Dan Wiley and Janet Allen for helping out with this project. Resurrection is written, researched, and hosted by me. Dane Stewart. The creation of this podcast was made possible thanks to the financial support of the Conseil des Arts de Montréal, the Conseil des Arts et des lettres de Québec, and the Canada Council for the Arts. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Now, go out there, live your lives.